Well, last week we introduced our lengthy series on the mind, the Christian mind, and we looked at that basic question of what happens when men don't think. And if you were here last week and remember uh, some of the emphases that we made during that time, you, you will remember that I said, quoting the words of John Stott, that mindless Christianity is both a misery and a menace. It has so many negative consequences to not only our lives, but also the lives of those around us. Now, in light of that, and in light of the text we looked at briefly last week, Romans 12, verse 2, the transformation comes through the renewal of our minds. We are now set on this course for months to come to study this very important topic of the Christian mind and what it means to be mindful, what it means to dedicate our thinking to the love and the glory of God. Now, with that in mind, we turn now to what is, I would say, the most fundamental text as it relates to the Christian mind. This is the text that justifies spending so much time on this very topic. In fact, it is this text that we will study this evening that demands that we give this topic of the mind our very close attention. I like what Os Guinness has said as he introduces the concept of loving God through our minds. He said this, thinking Christianly is first and foremost a matter of love, of minds in love with God and the truth of his world. When we talk about the Christian mind, as we are going to see tonight, it is not just about using our minds to acquire knowledge, using our minds to understand facts. It is not even about using our minds so that we can live successfully and avoid the consequences of sin. No, there is something much more important. There is something greater. In fact, as we will see tonight, there is a greatest, a foremost object of our attention here, and that is love for God. As I said, our text that we will look at brings this truth across in very vivid form. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. Our topic for this evening is the great commandment, and that title arises out of this text in Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. Matthew records this interaction. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. This interaction takes place in, in the context of Matthew 22, in a, in a context of hostilities 
between the religious leadership of Israel and Jesus the Messiah. This particular section comprises the third in a series of interrogations that Matthew records for us in this section. If you would look a little bit prior to this, you would find in verse 15, for example, the first question is asked, the question there from the Pharisees, a question about taxation. Verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And that launches onto this first interrogation, trying to trap Jesus, either in blasphemy or in some kind of logical inconsistency as it related to that most important standard of the Mosaic law. They are rebuffed by Jesus in that first question, and we have this as a response. Verse 22, in hearing Jesus' response, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Another question is asked then in verse 23, and this one is posed by the Sadducees. On that day, verse 23, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him. And again, their intent is not to gain knowledge from the Son of God. Their intent is to find Jesus in an error. And of course, once again, in response to their denial of the resurrection, Jesus gives them a response, and as verse 33 says, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, in the course of Matthew chapter 22, we now come to the climax of the questions offered by the religious leadership, those who are hostile to Jesus. And it begins in verse 34, as we've read. And what is unique about this question, as we will see when we come to the end in verse 40, is that unlike the previous two questions, this one does not have a summary statement that describes how the crowds responded. Matthew leaves it for us to ponder our response. Now let's go through this in a little bit more detail. And when we do, this text breaks up quite easily into two major sections. First of all, you have the question posed in verses 34 to 36. And we'll go through that in a little more detail. It's important to understand the context leading up to Jesus' great statement. And then in verses 37 to 40, you have Jesus' response to that question posed. Let's look at each of these and see how the Lord here instructs us on the importance of the mind. Let's look at the question, the ultimate question. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 36. We, we read in that, as we've read already, that the Pharisees are the ones now to come to Jesus. And undoubtedly, they were somewhat gleeful that Jesus had so soundly refuted the Sadducees. The Sadducees deny the bodily resurrection, the doctrine of the bodily resurrection, and the Pharisees believe in it based on texts like Daniel chapter 12. The Sadducees reject that, and Jesus puts them in their place and leaves them speechless. Undoubtedly, the Pharisees were happy about that. Jesus had just silenced the Sadducees. And the word for silence actually means muzzled. Jesus, in his wisdom, his infinite wisdom, had, had muzzled 
the Sadducees and found them in their error. Nonetheless, the Pharisees are no friends of Jesus. And when we read the text in verse 34, we we read that the Pharisees gathered themselves together. They see the Sadducees defeated, but now the Pharisees once again regroup. They're happy to see their, their opponents minimized, but they are not happy to see Jesus unscathed. In fact, the language of this opening narrative indicates that there is a reference here even to the language of Psalm 2 verse 2 where we read that the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and his anointed. And in verse 34 of Matthew 22, we read the same language. The Pharisees gathered themselves together. They gathered themselves together to take counsel against Yahweh and his Christ, his anointed. And we read also in verse 35 that one of them is sent. A representative from among the Pharisees is sent. He is described in very unique language. He is called a lawyer, but really we could understand this as a a legal expert. This man who comes to Jesus with the question is a legal expert. He is one who is fastidious in the most minute details of the Mosaic law. He knows what he is talking about. And as this man comes forward to ask Jesus the question, we find out that this is no good faith question. It's a bad faith question. There's malicious intent. We read in verse 35 that the lawyer comes asking him, trying to test him, trying to tempt him. And what do we see in response? Or what do we see as the content of this question, the content of this effort to trap Jesus in blasphemy or at the very least to trap him in some kind of logical inconsistency. We read this, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is the great commandment in the law? Now, this adjective great is the normal adjective for great, but in this context, because of all the words that surround it, it is, it is best to understand this as the superlative. The lawyer is not just asking which is the more, the more significant of the laws. He is looking for Jesus' response to what is the most important command of God. When it comes to the will of God, what is the most important issue? What is the greatest commandment? Now, what we know about the rabbis is that they, they delighted in taking the 613 laws of the Mosaic law, the 365 prohibitions and the 248 exhortations to take all of those 613 and to put them in a hierarchy to to consider which ones are weightier and which ones are lesser now even though this 
lawyer comes with this bad faith question, nonetheless, he does express what is the most ultimate question. This is a good question. This is a question from which we need an answer. This is a question that we could put in, in more general terminology and, and put it this way. What is the chief end of man? For the Jews, that language would be expressed in this phraseology. What is the greatest commandment from God? And we can take that and, and put it in perhaps more contemporary language and ask the question, what am I here for? What is my purpose in life? What is God's will for me? The most important issue, the most important question in all of life, what is my chief end? Why do I exist? What is my purpose here on this earth? This is a vital question. A question of utmost importance. Well, that's the ultimate question. Let's look now at the supreme answer. Jesus gives us the answer in verses 37 to 40 of Matthew chapter 22. And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, what is interesting about this response is that in the previous two interrogations of Jesus, Jesus asks questions in response and and a dialogue breaks out. But in this questioning, Jesus does not allow any opportunity for dialogue. Illustrating the vast importance of this issue, he doesn't ask a question in response. He doesn't invite the Pharisees to dialogue on this and to turn it around on them and to catch them in the air. He simply gives them, out of all these questions, the most simple, direct, straightforward answer. He gives them this straightforward answer because in an issue like this about what is the most important thing that I need to know, there's there's no room for dialogue. There's just room for declaration, just room for proclamation. Just room for assertion, and that's exactly what Jesus does. And his response to this ultimate question is twofold. And the first part of this answer is this. In in terms of the superior answer to this ultimate question, Jesus emphasizes the primacy of love to God. When you think of your chief end in life, why you are here why you exist, what your purpose is, what you're here to accomplish, it comes down to this, the primacy of love to God. This is the greatest commandment. Look again at what Jesus says in verses 37 to 38. Jesus says to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus answers here, By quoting the great Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now Jesus could have himself given his own 
his own answer in his own words because Jesus himself was greater than Moses. Jesus himself was greater than the Old Testament writings. He was greater than the prophets. And yet Jesus takes it right back to the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, and takes it back to their own law and says, this is the answer and this is always the way it is. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5, we read these words. It's very similar, but there's one, one little alteration that we'll discuss. But Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now Jesus is going to substitute that last word, might, for mind. We'll get to that in just a moment. But why does he use the Shema? The Shema was this... This statement, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. That was a, a statement that all pious, faithful Jews would repeat twice daily. They would write this on their doorposts. They would write it on little pieces of leather that they would put in boxes and then attach it to their foreheads or to their arms. And these things were called phylacteries. This is, this is a, a critical statement from the law. And Jesus uses this very statement. Now, like I said, when we look at this statement, we see Jesus summarizing the chief end of man. And, and when we look at it a little bit more closely, we can break it down into these following observations. First of all, there is a command that is given here. Notice the command. You shall love. You shall love. This is the heart of your chief end. This is the heart of the greatest commandment. This is at the heart of God's will for you. You shall love. Now, the statement for love isn't how we would define love according to the culture today. This is not primarily a feeling It's not some kind of mere emotional attachment. It's not some kind of passive thing that just happens to you when you fall into it. Not at all. This is something that is active. And the best way to understand the term love here, both in light of its exhortation in the Old and New Testaments, is to understand it this way. Love is a whole personed cleaving. A whole person cleaving is when all of the person recognizes the value and the beauty of another and in some way cleaves to that person. And that is how we are to understand this. It is a whole person cleaving. It is the highest dimension of relationship. It is the free and joyful giving of oneself for another. And notice the object of this cleaving. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God. Now, when we go back to the Shema, when we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we realize that the title Lord is actually the name Yahweh, the personal name. What Jesus is commanding here and what is commanded back in Deuteronomy 6 is not some kind of vague love for a higher power. 
It's not some kind of love for the concept of a deity. No, this higher power, this deity is given his personal name, Yahweh. He is the God who has uniquely revealed himself to Israel. He is the God who has revealed himself on the pages of Scripture, the one true God. And he is the God who has revealed himself to us ultimately in his Son, the incarnate Christ. This is no vague deity. This is Yahweh. You shall love Yahweh your God. Now it's interesting to note here that Jesus doesn't say you shall worship. Now certainly that's assumed in this, but he doesn't say worship. And he could have quoted from the first, the first commandments of the, the great tablets, the Ten Commandments. And the first five commandments dealt with the honor and worship of Yahweh. And Jesus could have simply said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall worship God. You shall worship Yahweh. But he doesn't use the word worship. He doesn't command worship. He commands something that is higher. Something that cannot be faked and forfeited. Something that cannot be just an external set of rituals. This is something much more profound. In fact, back in Matthew 15, verses 7 to 9, Jesus says to those same religious leaders, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, referring to Isaiah 29, 13, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Jesus does not just command worship here. He commands love. He commands ultimate cleaving. When the soul, when the mind, when the heart recognize in Yahweh His infinite beauty, His infinite majesty, His infinite glory, and says, I want nothing else but to be unified, to walk in communion with that glorious God. John Owen, the great Puritan, in his book, The Grace and Duty of Being Spiritually Minded, he describes love with these these helpful words. He says this, Love is the most ruling and prevalent affection in the whole soul. But it cannot be fixed on any object without an apprehension, true or false, of an amiableness and a desirableness in it, from a goodness suitable to all its desires. How few are there who have that spiritual discerning and apprehension of the divine excellencies, that view of the excellency and goodness and love of God in Christ, as thereby alone are drawn after Him and to delight in Him. Yet this is the ground of all sincere, real love to God. He goes on to say this, 
We love God for himself, for his own sake, not exclusively to our own advantage therein, for a desire of union and enjoyment, which is our only advantage, is inseparable from this love, end quote. Indeed, what God commands here, the greatest commandment, our chief end, is to love God for himself. To recognize his infinite beauty, his infinite worthiness, that there is nothing comparable to love. So we see the commandment, we see the object of the commandment, but now look back at the text in Matthew 22 and look at these words. When Jesus, quoting the Shema, says this with one slight alteration, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart. And with your soul and with your might. Now he says mind at the end. According to Deuteronomy, it was might. Now here he introduces the word mind. Now these three terms are obviously the focus of a lot of discussion in this text as to what these different words mean. If we are to love God with these things, what do they mean? And certainly, it does elicit a lot of debate. It is not easy to define these terms precisely. For one thing, these terms are used in other contexts, almost as synonyms to refer to the same things, but in, in, in different contexts. But more than that, these terms put together are difficult for us to define for for two reasons. These things do not just speak of physical organs, something that you can put on a table and measure and weigh and demarcate. These are transcendent issues, heart, soul, and mind. They defy our ability to measure and to delineate and to demarcate. And that's very difficult for us in defining these terms. But more than that, these terms speak to the reality that you and I are complex beings. And that we are composed of these these things, heart, soul, and mind. And they are intertwined and interrelated. Yes, they are distinct. And God understands these things Perfectly, he created us this way. But for us to understand these transcendent realities, uh, these intertwined components that make us who we are, is exceedingly difficult. It's important not to overanalyze these things. These, These details are emphasizing comprehensiveness. Jesus is making the point ultimately here that love is to come from all aspect of our being. You can't You can't say that love for God only needs to come from part of us and the rest can remain secular, worldly, natural, not at all. Jesus is emphasizing comprehensiveness. Yet at the same time, there is a shade of difference between these terms. We ought not to make too much of it, but it is somewhat helpful, and certainly when we get to the third of these, the mind, it is a very distinct term compared to the others of of heart and soul. How, How can we understand this? When we do a survey of Scripture, I think you could identify the differences between these three terms in the following way. Number one, the heart here refers to the innermost 
center of one's being. This is mission control center, the heart. Mission control center. The heart, according to the Hebrews and the Greeks, was, was not as we think of it today when, when kids will give each other Valentine's cards and there will be a heart on there and that kind of stuff. Not at all. The heart was the, the center of one's being. It was mission control center. The soul is a little different. The soul, if we look at scripture, seems to be that life force that makes us more than just material organisms. For example, in Genesis 2 verse 7, we read that the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. It seems to refer to that life force that makes us alive. Whereas heart, according to Proverbs 4 verse 23, is the mission control center. Proverbs 4 23, describing the heart, says that the heart, from the heart flow the springs of life. Now what's the mind then? Well, the mind is more easily definable. And the mind is that, as we've already discussed, is that faculty of thinking of comprehending, of reasoning, of believing. It is indeed an aspect that is exercised within the heart. We can read, for example, in Luke chapter 1, verse 51, in Mary's Magnificat, that she says here that God has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts there we have our term, the mind, the thoughts, the thinking of their heart. So the heart is the mission control center. The mind is functioning within that. The mind is distinct in that it is specifically responsible for thoughts. So if we step back and then say, okay, if these are the instruments of love, what is it referring to? Well, we could look at it this way. When Jesus says we are to love him with our heart, it's referring to the devotion and obedience that comes from mission control center. When he speaks of loving God with the soul, he's referring to all the energy and passion that we have of spiritual life and vitality. And when he says we must love from the mind, he is talking about the thoughts, talking about our reasoning, about our thinking about our belief, we must love God exercising that as well. Now, there's one more thing to notice about this great commandment. Not only does Jesus identify the command, the object of the love, the instruments by which it is applied and exercised, but also notice this. He refers to the extent. Three times... Three times, in an emphatic way, we find this word all. All your soul. All your heart. All your mind. And that repeated word all, 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 emphasizes totality. It emphasizes that there can be no room for divided allegiance and it's not just that there could be a, divi- a division between heart and soul and mind, but even within each of those, there is no room 
for division, for double-mindedness, double-heartedness. There's no room. As Lenski states, God will have no mere part. He will allow no division or subtraction. Not even the smallest corner is to be closed against God. As we step back and apply that, and we think specifically of our topic at hand, the topic of the mind, it means this. That when God gives us this revelation of his will for our lives, our chief end, our purpose for existence, as we take that and apply that to our thought life, it means God demands all of it. All of it. Not just Sunday morning thinking. Not just thinking when you're in Bible study and in prayer. Not just thinking when you're among other believers and you're talking about spiritual things. No, what God demands for you in loving him is that he has all of your thought life. He has all of your rationality. Every corner of it is brought under into submission to his lordship every idea. And so how does that look on a practical level as you drive down the freeway and the things that you think about? To love God means bringing all of those ideas into submission and turning them in some way to express love for God, thinking his thoughts after him. I like it how R.C. Sproul has answered this question. He says this, quote, To love God with our minds is to hold him in high esteem. To think about him with reverence and adoration. The more we love God with our minds, the more we'll be driven to do that other thing that is so alien to us in our fallen condition, namely to worship him. To pursue God with our minds simply for intellectual enjoyment and without the ultimate purpose of loving and worshiping him is to miss what it means to love him with our minds. True Knowledge of God always bears fruit in greater love for God and a greater desire to praise Him. The more we know Him, the more glorious He will appear to us. And the more glorious He appears to us, the more inclined we will be to praise Him, to honor Him, to worship Him, and to obey Him. End quote. Or how John Piper states it. He says this, Loving God with our mind, means wholly engaging our thinking to do all it can to awaken and express the heartfelt fullness of treasuring God above all things. And we come back to our text, and Jesus has one more thing to say about the first part of this answer. He says this, this is the greatest and foremost commandment. Jesus reiterates the supreme importance of this duty, calling it not only the greatest, but he adds another descriptor here, now used in the superlative, he calls it the foremost, the first. This is the greatest, this is the first, we could put it this way, this is man's chief end, this is your duty, this is God's will for your life, to love him, to love him with your own being, and 
specifically to love him with your thinking. Now, in brief, there's more to this. We'll look at this very briefly. It's part of Jesus' answer, and it's important to bring into the, the equation. Jesus gives a second part to his two-pronged answer here. In verse 39 of Matthew 22, as he continues to give this ultimate answer, he also adds this, another citation, this one taken from Leviticus 19, verse 18. He said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes from Leviticus 19, verse 18, and if we go back there, we'd read this. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Jesus connects the second commandment to the first to show the relationship of the second to the first. And it's important to get that order correct. There are two extremes in today's context. Either one is to forget about the natural outflow of the first commandment and to ignore the second. But you cannot do that. If you love Yahweh with all your heart and all your mind and with all your soul, you will be compelled internally to love those who bear his image. You will love your neighbor. You cannot omit the second commandment. But at the same time, what's important here is that Jesus himself indicates that this is the second and it is like the first, but it is not the first. And that reveals, even in our day, a fundamental problem. Among many today, the second has been inverted. The second commandment has replaced the first to make the love of God secondary and dependent on love of neighbor. Jesus does not allow that. He says the second, it's the second, and it's like it, but it is not the first. You cannot truly love your neighbor, you cannot truly obey the second without love for the God of Scripture. You cannot love your neighbor more than God. After stating this, Jesus brings it to a summary with his words in verse 40. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Again, he is speaking in absolute categories here. He is giving us the most fundamental information that we need for our lives today. Everything hangs on this. The way that Jesus says this, when he says depend, it it actually has the idea of hanging. It's like the idea of a peg. These two commandments are the peg upon which all of God's other special revelation hangs. Now, when you look at your Bibles, you see, as I said, there is no description given by Matthew here to describe how the crowds responded. And that appears to be intentional because he leaves it hanging. And the question then is, well, how do you respond? How do you respond to this ultimate answer? Let's think of that, specifically how it relates to the mind. How are we to live in light of this great commandment, specifically as it relates to 
the mind, first of all, let me give you five here. Five summary applications as we draw this to a close. Number one, loving God requires the use of your mind. It really does. You cannot love God truly. You cannot love God truly without the engagement of your mind. What is called Christian anti-intellectualism is actually an oxymoron. It cannot exist. There is no such thing. Anti-intellectualism cannot be Christian. Jesus makes it very clear that biblical faith, knowledge, the use of the mind is indispensable in the true love of God. Therefore, we must be very careful to reject the dichotomies that are so prevalent in our world today. The dichotomy between the head and the heart. The dichotomy between thinking and doing. The dichotomy between faith and doctrine. Those are false dichotomies intended to draw us away from fulfilling our chief end. Instead, we must put these back together. And recognize that true love to God does require, it insists upon the use of our minds. And I would say this, the epitome of many false religions is to reject the centrality of knowledge in the pursuit of God. That's false religion. God says as much, for example, in Hosea 4 verse 6, when he says this, my people are destroyed For lack of knowledge, because they rejected knowledge, I will also reject them. Or go to, go to Romans chapter 10, as Paul, as Paul mourns over the state of his people, the people of Israel, he says this in Romans 10 verses 1 to 3, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And that zeal can never save. And Paul will go on to say that, that you must confess that the historical person of Jesus is Lord. And you must believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead. Loving God requires the use of your mind. Number two, loving God requires all of your thinking. Remember that Jesus placed an absolute claim on You, not just every aspect of your being, but every aspect of every aspect of your being. Uh, he, He claims not only your heart and soul and mind, but he claims all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. There is no room here for rebellious territory. You cannot have divided loyalties within your thoughts. You cannot allow just certain areas of your thinking to remain unsubmissive to the Lordship of Christ. You cannot allow that any longer. Every thought needs to be brought captive. God lays claim to all of it. And to to use your mind in this totality is the essence of loving God. Jesus makes a radical claim. You must love God with all of your thinking. Number three, loving God with your mind is prior to loving others. 
You have to remember that. Yes, using your mind to love God must naturally lead to love those who bear God's image. You, you cannot ignore the second. Your love for God must always produce love for neighbor. If you have no love for neighbor, then we have every right to question your love for God. But note this, the great travesty, as I mentioned already, in our day is that these commands have been inverted. The greatest and the foremost has been subjected to the second. And perhaps one of the the illustrations of this in our day is a phrase that, as far as I can tell, has, has come actually from the government doesn't come from scripture and it's been embraced by many including by many professing christians and it's the claim that you must worship responsibly worship responsibly and the idea behind that is that you are allowed to worship god so long as we the community your neighbors decide that you can do it that way and many christians say okay okay that's love for neighbor How my neighbors define love for them is then what will determine my love for God. And that is the motto of secularism. Jesus said, no, the first and the greatest is love for God. And if we look elsewhere in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, for example, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his own mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. You cannot put these two things as equals. Love for God is far greater, infinitely greater than love for neighbor. Number four, loving God with your mind requires fuel. Consider it to be a fire. If you feed the fire, it'll grow. If you suffocate it, it will dwindle. Feed the fire. In response to this preeminence that Jesus places on this command, you cannot neglect the cultivation of your own mind toward this ultimate purpose in life. Again, quoting from John Piper, he says this, The fires of love for God need fuel. And the fires of love for God drive the engines of thought and deed. There is a circle. Thinking feeds the fire, and the fire fuels more thinking and doing. I love God because I know him, and I want to know him more because I love him. Feed the fire. And what does that mean? Obviously, it begins first and foremost with the steady, intentional Diet of God's revelation, his word to you, his sermons to you found in this book. That's what fuels the fire. Read it. Take it. Read it. Read it day in and day out. And that will fuel the the fire that will turn the wheels of love for God. You can do more than that. Read books about the scriptures. Listen to sermons about the scriptures. Memorize, meditate, study, and sing. These are all disciplines that will fuel this fire. So, for example, when we gather on Wednesday nights and we sing, think about what we're singing. Don't allow these thoughts just to remain on the periphery. Take them in. 
And in the depth of your heart, think about these thoughts and allow them to inspire you to greater love. Number five, loving God is the ultimate purpose to your thinking. Loving God is the ultimate purpose to your thinking. I said that Christian anti-intellectualism is, is an oxymoron. It cannot exist, but we can say this too. Christian intellectualism is also not an option. Thinking merely for the, for, for the fact of thinking. Gathering knowledge merely to gather knowledge. Thinking just to be a thinker. Thinking just to be your own theologian. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is that you steward your intellectual abilities for one ultimate purpose. That you would cleave to God more greatly than you have ever cleaved before. That you would enjoy fellowship with him more than you have ever enjoyed before. That you would enjoy his person through delighting in thinking his thoughts after him. What a glorious, what a glorious opportunity. Again, Os Guinness has said this, loving God with our minds is not finally a question of orthodoxy, but of love. Offering up our minds to God and all our thinking is part of our praise. We're not just talking about thinking here in order to dot our theological I's and cross our theological T's, although that is essential. It has got to lead to one ultimate goal, and that is doxology, love for God. Having said all this, I want to leave you with one more thought, and this will be a thought actually that we will pick up next week. What Jesus just commanded, what he laid before you as your chief end, you cannot do in your own natural power. You cannot do it in your unregenerate state. And we'll explain why next week. As we close, we're going to come back with our thinking to these words of Jesus, of loving God. I'm going to pray. We'll close with going back to the second hymn that we sang in the start of our time together, Be Thou My Vision. But let's pray and ask God to press these things deep within us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the words that you've given to us in your law that very clearly define for us our ultimate purpose, defined in you our all in all, that our greatest desire would be the thought of you rightly thinking comprehending even in little, small, tiny steps who you are. Understanding just glimpses of your glory, meditating on just these small revelations given to us in your word of how majestic and great and loving and merciful you are. Lord, we ask that you would consume us 
in that desire so that our minds and our limited abilities would consume what you have revealed to us. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. Amen.